This morning we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come once again to chapter 16. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, just wave to the guys that are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. They'll put it in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying. And then if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today, and then bring it with you next week. And, and the, the Word of God has a double impact when we listen to it, and then we see it with our own eyes as well. We'll look at a single verse uh, this morning, verse um, 25, but we'll want to pick the context up a little bit by going to verse 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer. This is Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy and now Dr. Luke. That a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us and brought her masters much profit through fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when their masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And then for our main focus this morning, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Let's pray together now. Father, thank you so much for your word. I know that I prayed and we pray it just about every week and just about every time we open up the Bible, but we haven't lost our awe yet of the privilege of being able to do so. And we have listened to so much nonsense and so much, so much, so much into our eye gate, into our ear gate, and, and into our lives and our hearts and our minds, and they've accomplished this and that in the la course of the last week. But all of it temporal, all of it, Lord, is just going to give way and, and melt with a fervent heat one day. There's nothing like your word. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to it today. And we pray that you would take it in the hands of your Holy Spirit and you would speak to us personally. And you're the only one that can speak to several hundred people personally and individually and then corporately at the same time. And we ask that you do that. And Lord, we, all we want to do is become more and more like Christ. And so we ask that you use this passage to accomplish it as well. And we pray all of these things in the name of the one that we have sung about this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul and his team are on their second missionary journey, and they received a vision of a man of Macedonia while on this missionary journey. And it completely redirected the journey as, as they intended it to unfold. And recognizing this vision to be from God, they then made their way to that section of the world that was known in those days as Macedonia. We know it as northern Greece today. And in coming now to uh, Macedonia or northern Greece on their missionary journey, they, for the first time, formally brought the gospel into Europe. And this whole directing by God, it communicates something very, very important to us in all of the mess that they ultimately find themselves in the city of Philippi. And that is that 
In the difficulty that we've just read about, that they faced and experienced, they were right in the middle of God's will for their lives. All of this that was happening in coming to Philippi to begin with, the casting out of the demon out of the uh, girl that was possessed with the demon, this was all directed by God. Paul could no more cast a demon out of a girl uh, than that chair could accomplish it. It is God that accomplishes that by His Holy Spirit through us. So they're in the mess, so to speak, that they're in, completely in the will of God as a result of seeking God's will and obeying His will for their lives. And I think it's very important to realize that God's will isn't always easy. In fact, it can be extraordinarily hard. And I have to fight, and I suspect that some of you are like that me, is I tend to think that if I'm in the will of God, everything is going to be glassy seas, everything's going to be calm, uh, all of the relationships in my life are going to be, uh, you know, on, on good ground, life will be relatively trouble-free. And, and very often, uh, we can think that God's will is like that, and then when life gets turned upside down, as it does for Paul and Silas here, uh, we can immediately think that there's something wrong. Somehow I must be out of the will of God, but it isn't, isn't true. Now, in coming to Macedonia, they entered into the city of Philippi, where things got off to a very, very good start. They go down by the river. They preach the gospel to a group of women. God opens up the heart of a very prominent a businesswoman in the city of Philippi to the gospel. She becomes saved. Her entire household becomes saved as a result. And, uh, and as has been famously observed concerning Lydia, who was saved, that who would have known that the man of Macedonia in the vision would turn out to be a woman? And yet that's precisely how it turned out. Now, as Paul and his team ministered in Philippi, there's this young girl, and she's demon-possessed. She's a slave to some kind of a financial partnership of, of men, and she begins to follow Paul and the team around the city of Philippi, and she's declaring, broadcasting, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So that tells us that Paul was preaching in Philippi, and he was preaching to the city how to be saved, preaching the gospel to them. Now, Paul recognized that the message of this girl, while it was completely accurate, would create confusion in people's minds and cause them to think that, well, the spirit that is behind this girl and the spirit behind this girl was uh, the ancient uh, Greek and Roman deity of Apollo. That was what the worship that she was involved in. And people would look and say, wow, she's saying the same thing that these guys are saying. And so the God behind her, Apollo, must also be behind the apostle and his team as they're preaching the gospel there in Philippi. And Paul didn't want them to have that confusion, of course, and so he cast the demon out of the girl. And I think that he cast it out of the girl, the demon, out of a concern for the girl, but I think supremely uh, out of a concern that the city itself would not be confused and thinking that they were there under the same spirit that was operating through the girl. But it wasn't the demon alone that flew away at that kind of deliverance that Paul made of, of the girl, but at the same time, all of the future prophets of these men, it flew away as well. And they realized it immediately, and they weren't happy about it. I don't know how, it doesn't tell us how they knew whether it was her countenance or they tried to get the next fortune out of her, but they immediately knew this girl is not the same girl. The spirit that was there is no longer there. And so unhappy, you know, in a, in a very ugly way related to their own lives, uh, unhappy about it, 
they proceeded to seize Paul and Silas. And the strength of the words in the passage, I mean, they're very strong. They seize him. Then they drag them into the marketplace. I don't know the last time you've been dragged across town by a group of people, but that's what happened to Paul and Silas. And they were dragged to the center of town where uh, the civil authorities were found there in Philippi, and their accusation against Paul and Silas is very, very clever and very, very deceptive. The real reason that they were upset with Paul and Silas was because they had cast a demon out of their slave girl, and they couldn't make money anymore out of her pitiful condition. But you can't bring that before a judge or before a crowd because you're not going to get a very sympathetic audience. Uh, when you try and, you know, gain pity by virtue of describing that as uh, your particular plight. And so they did, they attempt to incite the authorities in the city against Paul and Silas uh, through anti-Semitism and through nationalism, which is the easiest means of all to move a person, uh, this kind of prejudice, and to move a mob or to move a crowd personal prejudice. And you notice in verse 26, these men being Jews. And then verse 27, they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans. And so they appeal to the anti-Semitism and the nationalism uh, of the crowd that was there, and, and it worked very, very well in, in inciting not only the magistrates, but also a mob who had gathered uh, there in verse 22. Paul and Silas then had their clothes torn off of them. I don't know the last time you had that happen in your life at the hands of an angry mob, but that's what happened. Their clothes were then torn off them in order for the Roman officials who are now going to issue a, a beating with rods upon Paul and Silas in order that there would not be the slightest anything between those rods and their skin. I don't know how many of you uh, got a whooping uh, when you were growing up, uh, but they, people used to do that kind of thing. It was back when America was great. Uh, but people used to... Uh, it was called applied psychology, and it was called a spanking and so forth, and I got a few of them. And, uh, uh, you know, it was always best to have, you know, undergarments on and maybe a brand new pair of Levi's. And then if you got kind of spanked over that, very little harm could be done, especially the way they used to make Levi's and all. And if you knew it was coming, you know, you'd get a magazine or something back there uh, in the meantime. But to have, but to, sometimes it'd be like you'd drop everything, and then there's the belt or there's the, you know, the twig or whatever it is. Now, nothing between that and the skin and, uh, and it made the punishment all, more, all the more uh, memorable. And so their clothes were torn off of them and were told that they were beaten with many stripes. These aren't children. These are adults now. And they're being beaten for having done right and having done good. And they were beaten, we're told, with many stripes. And the idea is they were beaten severely. Under Jewish law, when a person was taken prisoner and stripes were meted out upon them, under Jewish law, you could never exceed 39 stripes. Uh, that was their uh, upper limit that they placed upon any kind of corporal punishment like this. But the Romans understood no such limitation uh, to a beating. They would simply beat a person until they wanted to stop, and then they uh, stopped. And this probably was one of the three instances that Paul mentioned in his second letter to the church at Corinth where he had received the Roman punishment of being flogged with rods. They were then thrown into prison, and the, com the commander of the, the jailer of the prison was given the command then that they were to be kept uh, 
securely. This jailer is a very conscientious man because he doesn't then take them and put them in one of the outer cells of the prison. He takes them into the inner heart of the prison, into what we would call the dungeon of the prison, and he not only imprisons them there, but he further puts their feet in stocks. He shackles them in some way to the walls uh, of the prison. And where once he then leaves, having shackled them there, he takes his torch, he takes his lantern, and after he leaves, that room is pitch black. There is no light at all. You remember that after the earthquake, as we saw last week, and he wants to re-enter that section of the prison, he called for a lamp, he called for a lantern, because you couldn't see in that room. And so here they are, Paul and Silas, this is the condition that they're in. And I have to and we have to understand all of that in order to try and appreciate the lesson of the passage that we want to explore here this morning. So these are their circumstances, physically, in complete darkness, no food, no water, the smell of the place must have been awful. There wasn't like a buzzer you could hit and then go to the bathroom through the night or during the day. Their backs and their bodies are bleeding. Uh, their bodies are literally throbbing with each beat of their heart on the wounds that they've received. They've been fastened in stocks. It's impossible for them to get comfortable at all. They cannot tend to their own wounds. But the misery, I think, of the circumstances weren't limited just to their physical condition, but they were then assaulted, no doubt, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and all of this as well. Think of it as you're in that prison now for having done the right thing, having done the God thing, having done the good thing, having been brought before a Roman hearing, supposed to be a Roman courtroom. There is no self-defense. There was no Roman law meted out in that hearing. And so mentally, all of this would smite their sense of justice. I mean, you can imagine the temptation to feel the outrage of being treated in this way so unfairly by these judges and Paul being a Roman citizen, and then to think about how that mob had believed all of the lies, the judges had believed all of the lies. They had done it readily. They had done it eagerly. And all of this was done in a Roman city that was considered to be a colony, and all of it done in violation of Roman law. And then emotionally, imagine the shame and the embarrassment, the humiliation. Paul is a Jew. He's a Jew of the Jews. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Modesty is important to him, important to all grown people. And to be dragged to the center of town, to have a mob then gather around, here you are, a grown man and to be stripped of your clothes and then to be humiliated in front of the entire city. It would be like being dragged down to five points in Modesto and all of the people that you know in the city and know you and so forth, and all of this is meted out publicly, a horrible uh, emotional humiliation that these two men have gone through. And they hadn't, again, done it for doing something wrong or some crime. It was all occurring because they had done something good in, in delivering this demon-possessed girl out of her affliction. And I have no doubt there was a demonic element to all of this as well. Where the devil comes in, he never plays fair. And when you find yourself in circumstances that are as hard as this or unfair as this, he seems to be so faithful to then come in along in those kind of situations and tempt then a child of God not only to question the fairness of man, the fairness of Rome, Rome's judicial system, but also the fairness of God. And he's very good in trials like this, at coming and whispering, if God really loved you, why would he allow this to happen to you? And that's not the worst thing he can say. He'll go even further, more dangerous, more bold, and say something like, if God is real, then why in the world would he allow this to happen to you? How could he allow it? And maybe there's one or two of us in the room today 
where the depth of your trial, it's similar to this dungeon in, in Philippi, one awful thing after another being piled up upon you, and the devil comes in, and these are two of his favorite whispers. How could God love you and treat you this way, or is God even real that such a thing could be allowed to happen? Now, notice their response to all of this in verse 25. But before we get to their response, let's consider what their response might have been to the thing that they were in the middle of, what we might have expected from them. We could expect that they might have been brought into there and shackled to the wall, and all we would ever hear from them would be moaning or groaning or complaining or this chorus of woe is me or a long tirade against Roman justice and how wicked people can be with this kind of a specific you know, rant against the men who made merchandise of this girl for these years and then lied about the real reason for their anger with the disciples and a long sermon on the unfairness of life and, and, uh, and, or they would have just been thrown into the prison and then from the exhaustion of all of it, just sit in that inner prison in complete silence. And sitting there with my own thoughts, maybe thinking... Oh, the heck with all of them. The whole population of Philippi. If this is what you get for helping people in a city like this, then I don't, want to, I don't need all of this aggravation. I'm done with it. But notice their response in contrast. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God. And their prayers expressing faith in God, because that's what prayers always express beyond what's communicated in the prayer. Prayer is always an expression of my dependence upon God, but also my faith in God. And so they prayed, expressing their faith in God. Their songs expressing their worship to God, and their joy. And put yourself in the scene of that prison, being a part of that prison, imagine it, and hearing as you are in one of these outer cells within the prison at midnight, and then hearing from the very heart of the prison, the very core of the prison, the first century church's equivalent of amazing grace. Be thou my vision. Blessed assurance. It is well with my soul. What a powerful, powerful scene is before us in this verse. And when I stop and I think of their response, I have to confess to you, it really searches me. And I stop and think about what my reaction might have been in a similar circumstance. And I stop and I think about my responses to circumstances in life that are far less severe than these circumstances. And what the passage does for me, I don't say it does it for you, nor that it needs to, but what it does for me is it shames me. It exposes to me how fragile my joy can be in the face of my circumstances at times, and how it is that I can allow comparatively trivial things, trivial events in life, to completely rob me of my joy and of my song. But it does so in a very, very healthy way. There's an old saying, sometimes feeling bad feels good. And that's the truth of the matter when I feel bad because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When feeling bad feels good because it causes me to then look at this passage for what I can learn regarding myself in order to make my joy more stable 
to make my joy a little more circumstance proof. Think about your own joy. You can begin the day with joy, and here we go, and all within a mile of our commute. Some stupid person, and how in the world did they get that license? And who loaned them their car because they couldn't have bought it because nobody could hold down a job and buy a car like that if they drive like… Or this is a common thing that happens now. You stop at a light, and the light turns green, and you wait for the six cars in front of you to stop texting or checking their phone to then now move forward so maybe some of us can get on with our light. Or circumstances… Here you go. These kind of circumstances on one end of the spectrum, like this prison, and the spectrum circumstances clear on the other end of the spectrum, and we realize how often, how fragile our joy, this priceless thing called joy, becomes in the face of the circumstances in life. And the passage has something to teach us about, again, making our joy a little bit more circumstance-proof and a little bit more stable. And let's take note of a handful of those lessons here concerning how to maintain joy in the middle of the ebb and flow of life, the circumstances of life, even when uh, they're very, very dark and very, very difficult. Number one, first, we noticed that Paul and Silas, they looked above their circumstances and they put their focus on God. And it tells us right there in the verse. Notice we're told that praying and singing hymns to God. God was their focus in that prison. Uh, There's the uh, old saying that when the outlook is bad, try the uplook. And it's true. And it's true. And sometimes when somebody you know, like a preacher like me says something like that in the face of the circumstances and they've got their eyes on God and when the outlook looks bad, try the uplook and so forth and what a firm grasp of the obvious that I might possess. Listen, it may seem like an obvious thing and to lift up our eyes off of the circumstances and put them on God, but sometimes the trials are so deep that we need the Bible And we need to be reminded of the obvious because the circumstances are so big and they're so consuming and disorienting in our life. And the greatest way that I can get my eyes off of my circumstances and back onto God are the two ways that are listed in the passage. Prayer and then sing to God, to worship God. Because as I do these two things, something wonderful happens, something needed happens in my life. My head is then lifted off of the circumstances and lifted to God. The Bible talks about uh, God being and the Holy Spirit being the lifter of our head, and we need Him to be that. Because sometimes our circumstances are so strong, they're using up all of the oxygen in the room. They're so devastating that we can hardly take our eyes off of them, our focus off of them, and we need something that is greater than the difficulty that we're in to focus our eyes upon. And only God is that at times. And so as we begin to pray, as we begin to worship God and praise Him, then God becomes the lifter of our heads. And then as a result of that, we begin then to be infused with fresh faith and hope, and we begin to regain perspective. Because now I'm seeing my circumstances in the light of God's greatness, in the light of who He is, in the light of His promises. Now, the second thing that we learn here related to joy is that as difficult as their circumstances were, again, they knew that they were in the will of God. They knew that God had directed them to Philippi, and they knew that God was the one that had cast that uh, demon out. And as hard, once again, as the will of God for our lives can be, and it can be very, very hard, it is better to be in a dungeon in the will of God than to be in a castle outside of it. 
because it is in the will of God alone that you and I experience these two things that are absolutely priceless in life, and that is uh, peace and joy. It is only found in God's will. And the knowledge that I am in God's will at these times, even when it's as hard as it is, it's priceless. And so for all of the misery of their physical circumstances at the moment that they were experiencing there, they had the peace, they had the joy, they had their eyes upon God, they had the knowledge that they were in His will, and they rejoiced in it. And maybe that's one or two of us here this morning. And here you are in a mess. You couldn't believe a mess like this could ever happen. Ten people, your ten worst enemies couldn't put it together. And how'd you get here? By robbing a bank? By stealing a car? By dealing drugs? No. By simply doing a God thing and a good thing for someone else in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, and then a reaction to that being something you could have never dreamed that human beings would have, and yet you have the joy of knowing that I am in the middle of God's will in this mess that my act of good from God has produced. Third, we notice that in every circumstance in life as Christians, we always have reasons to praise and to worship God. That in every dark circumstance in life, there is a song of joy to be sung. And someone might say, what song is that? It is any song that speaks of God, speaks of His greatness, speaks of His nature, or any song that speaks of His promises for the simple reason that God never changes whatever our circumstances might be. And God's promises never change and never fail whatever our circumstances might be at the moment. And here it is in this prison, they clearly esteem God to be worthy of their praise, whatever their circumstances, no matter how dark or confusing or unfair. And why did they praise God? What would they praise God for in the middle of that environment? They praise God because as Christians, God's promises to us and all that He is and all that we are in Christ Jesus, all of that lays far beyond the reach of this world and any of our circumstances. And who God is and His promises, they're sure, they're solid, they cannot be changed, they can never be affected by my circumstances. And someone might wonder, maybe new to the Bible and all of this, or just confused by your circumstance. And you say, what are some of the examples of these promises, these things that are untouched and unaffected by the circumstances of life? Your salvation. Your salvation. No circumstance in life can ever affect that. That never changes. God already sees you as a Christian glorified in heaven. You remember when Jesus sent the 70 out in order to go to the cities ahead of him, the cities that he was going to go in the Galilee region, and he gave them authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and so forth. And they came back after they had been out to Jesus, and they were just totally pumped that they got to go out there and push the devil around a little bit. Wow, this authority, we've never had this in our life before. We're casting out demons and all, and this is what they were all excited about. And Jesus then spoke to them, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Wow. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. One day I'm going to heaven. And as a Christian, one day you're going to heaven. And you're going to stand on that glassy sea and you're going to join in that entire scene and there is no circumstance in life that will ever change that. And it is a cause for joy. We have the possession of the forgiveness of sins. That God has forgiven us as Christians of every sin we have ever committed. Now, I don't know about you, but that was quite a bit for me. And he will forgive us of every sin we will ever commit. And it isn't just the forgiveness of sins, but the fact that he allows us to live as Christians every single day free from guilt and free from condemnation. And the fact that God has forgiven us of our sins, that lies beyond the reach of any circumstance within our life. It is always a cause for joy and worship in our heart being directed towards the Lord. And then there is the fact that God has adopted us and made us a part of his family, that we have a relationship with God and that he is our heavenly father and that cannot be touched, that God is always present with us in life, that we have an instantaneous access to a throne of grace before which we can approve, appear at any time in prayer and only receive grace and mercy from that throne in answer to our prayer. He has filled us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us the promise to work all things together for good. And the passage that we're looking at, the entire incident, testifies to there is one of those promises that was a promise for Paul and Silas. Their circumstances are miserable. But was God faithful to the promise to work all things together for good because of their love for God and they're called according to his purposes? Yes, and the salvation of the jailer and his whole household. And what is true of them is true continually of us. All of these things to rejoice in and to worship God for that can never be affected by the circumstances in our life. Paul would later write to the same church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and he wrote to them, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then just knowing that sometimes people hear that and it goes like this, even Christians. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't hear me the first time, he said, And again, I say, rejoice. And why would he declare this to those Christians and to us? And again, he writes that line from a different prison, a Roman prison, in writing the letter to the church at Philippi, except that for the Christian, there is always a cause for joy, which cause is always well beyond the reach of life and its circumstances. Another thing to notice here is that this verse also teaches us the vital place that worship and praise plays in maintaining joy in our lives as Christians during uh, great trials. And we need to praise God in our lives. We have a need to do that as Christians. And we have a need to do it because he is always worthy of our praise and always worthy of our worship. And, and that's supremely why we worship him. But God, you can never outgive God. God gives us this capacity to worship him and to praise him because he knows every human being was created as a worshiper and that we have a need to uh, worship as well. And I, I sometimes wonder whether a praiseless Christianity can result in anything other than a joyless Christianity. Sometimes I uh, will watch. I'm in church, and I look at people just the way that you do. It's kind of like, you know, you're sitting at table, and here the whole family's gathered together, and it's the dinner table, and everybody's about to pray. And so, okay, let's all close our eyes, take hands. Dad says, oh, and let's close our eyes, and we're going to pray. And then they begin to pray, and the little Mikey says, Dad, Frankie's already, you know, playing with his mashed potatoes. Well, Mikey, how would you know that if your eyes were closed during the prayer? So, 
Sometimes when I should be worshiping, I'm looking around just a little bit. Not much, but I do. And sometimes there are people, and I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but I'll, I'll have you stand in a moment, but just... Um, and every week they read their bulletin or something all the way through the worship in song part of the service. Never move their lips, never enter in. Not even remotely in danger of ever standing or raising their hands. And again, I, I wonder whether a praiseless Christianity can result in anything other than a joyless Christianity. Sometimes we can find ourselves waiting for a reason for joy. I'm waiting for a feeling. I'm waiting for some motivation to joy. And then, then I'll praise. Then I'll engage in praise and worship. But most often it, it, it occurs the exact opposite other way around. It is as we begin to praise and to worship when there appears to be nothing to praise God for on the horizontal because the circumstances are so difficult and so dawning that then joy will follow. And the reason that it happens is because the Holy Spirit will always bring His presence into our worship. In Psalm 22, verse 3, David wrote, Thou art holy to God. Thou art holy. Thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. When we praise God and when we worship God, God by His Holy Spirit inhabits those praises. And as He does that, then things begin to change in, in our hearts, and the Holy Spirit begins to breathe upon this joy that's kind of gone. It's just the smoking flax. And as we're worshiping the Lord, He begins to breathe upon that joy, and He brings that joy then into a flame. And it happens over and over and over again. Someone might protest, well, what if I don't feel like praising and worshiping God? All the more reason for you to do it. All the more reason for you to do it, buckaroo. If anyone, the person who has the greatest need in the room to worship the Lord is so often the person who doesn't but has no idea what they're missing because they never do. What if I don't feel like praising and worshiping the Lord? The Bible speaks of offering our praise to God as a sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 13. It talks about offering Him a sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice always represented a, the giving of something that was sacrificial on my part. And in giving it to God, it makes it even more valuable to God. And so sometimes worship will be sacrificial, especially in the early part of it, where here we come in and the weight of the world is upon us and so forth, and we come into this room and, and here we go, the first you know, couple of songs, we're singing them just because God is worthy of it and so forth, and then pretty soon, you, you, you know, in offering that sacrifice to Him, God begins to inhabit the praise and then the joyous re rebirth back into our hearts. But it communicates in that sometimes our worship and song to the Lord isn't always going to be easy. It's going to cost us something to do it. But as we do it, I begin now to see Him again for who He is, what He is, and who He is and what He is is always wonderful. And then my joy is rebirthed in life. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You would experience it week in and week out as a part of the singing portion of our, our services and other services throughout the week that have this as a part of them uh, as well. You know, the worship and song part of our service, it's not merely like, okay, this is the song section of our hour and a half together, and this is, you know, uh, the, the uh, part of the service where the worship team gets up and they kind of do their thing and we're just kind of killing time, uh, you know, until we get to the Word of God. And that portion of the service isn't even supremely for 
preparing us for the teaching of the Word of God, though it does that. I've heard it said many, many times by pastors, and they say, well, you know, this singing to God and this worship part of the service, it's merely the preparation of our hearts to receive the Word of God. And I believe that that is accomplished, but I never look at the worship and song part of our service as something that is merely preparing uh, for something, you know, infinitely superior to it afterward. It is its own wonderful, needed, majestic thing in its own right, and it gives us this needed taste of heaven every week. One of the interesting things, you know, regrets related to the Bible is that the Bible doesn't tell us more about heaven, uh, as much about heaven rather than we want to know. But one of the places we see heaven portrayed over and over again, interestingly enough, is in the book of Revelation. And that heavenly scene is before us over and over and over again. And with it, you know what's before us? Praise and worship and honor and glory being given to God in song. And and we are able to see the joy of heaven and the expression of the joy of being in heaven. And in that scene, expressed in praise and worship. And I'll tell you, I'm very, very thankful to our worship teams here who week in and week out, they give us a little taste of heaven, and they seat us in the heavenlies each week. Oftentimes, we'll pray before we come out for the morning or the evening services and say, Lord, we in this wilderness called planet Earth, we have such need. Would you give us a little foretaste of heaven tonight in the worship and in the service itself and in the teaching of the Word of God, and it does it because it has a way of taking our eyes off of the, our circumstances and then and the world that's all around us and then lifting our focus to the Lord himself. The psalmist uh, wrote of uh, singing songs to God in the night, Asaph did in Psalm 42 verse 8. He wrote, but each day the Lord pours uh, uh, his unfailing love upon me. And then here it is. And through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. And I have found that God will give us a song for the nighttime, and not just when it's midnight in terms of time, but I'm talking about when the circumstances in life are so dark physically and emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and, and it's, it's like midnight. It is the dark of night in terms of the circumstance, and God will be faithful to give us a song for those night seasons of life. Have you ever noticed how he does that? I mean, here you are. You're kind of overwhelmed by this situation. I mean, the thing is just gobbling up your focus, and, and, and how could this happen, and then this happened on top of that, and then this happened on top of that, and all of a sudden, God puts a song in your mind. You haven't thought about that song for 20 years. It's from the 10th and F days. It's from the windows painted blue days. And if it was up to your memory, you would have never remembered that song in three more lifetimes. It was gone, done, buried. It is not a part of your repertoire any longer. And you know, how in the world did I remember that song? I would have never remembered it unless God was bringing it to my remembrance. And then he brings that song, he brings it to your mind, and in fact, he brings it to your mind so strongly, you can't get it out of your mind. And you know you didn't do it. But the Holy Spirit chose that song for you, brought it to your remembrance, because he knows this is what you need to sing about God and to know about God to raise your eyes off of the circumstances and for joy to be returned back into our lives. Now, I, what I do when God does this to me, and he does it on a regular basis, because my life is so miserable, I'm just but when he brings these songs to my remembrance, and because I'm kind of analytical on it, I'll then, you know, uh, take the song apart. 
Okay, what is this song God has given it to me? I would have never remembered this. I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. And so what is this song? I deconstruct it and say, what does this tell me about God? What is God trying to cause me to focus on in this chapter in my life, this season in my life? And then I embrace it. And it's this giving of a song is a wonderful expression of God's presence and of his care. And finally... And very significantly, we also learn here that the more difficult and dark our circumstances in life, the more powerful the impact that our praise and our worship and our prayer and our joy has on the lives of others for God. And here you've got these prisoners in jail, just having a nice cup of tea, and they're all in their tutus. Now, that's not the way ancient jails were. These are really, really tough people. And they're used to always having this new batch of Roman prisoners being brought into the prison, and in they come with all of their cursing and all of their swearing and uh, crying out against Roman justice and how innocent they are and how unjust life has been to them and so forth. And in one minute, as these new prisoners would be brought into the prison, they would need only that minute to understand all they needed to know about the new prisoners and then say, uh, you know, new boss like the old boss, roll over and then go back to sleep. But in come two prisoners here. And this time, they hear prayers, and they hear hymns. And these, again, very, very tough prisoners, they remained awake at midnight. They remained awake at midnight, not in case the jailer was going to offer an extra meal, but for the sole purpose of listening to what Paul and Silas might pray next and what they might sing next to their God. And they listened to it because they wanted to know more about a God that could put that kind of a thing in a person's heart in those circumstances. And the word when it says they were listening to them In the original language, it means to be listening attentively. They are in the privacy of their cells. They are a good distance away from the center of the prison. And and yet here they are in the privacy of all that, in the distance of that, they are listening. And Paul and Silas could not have known that it was happening, but it was happening. And when you and I continue to trust in God, and to worship him in the midst of great difficulty, people are watching and they are listening, though it may be from a distance, and they may pretend that they are not, and they are four cubicles away, but nothing else is happening in that room except what they are watching and hearing from you, or in the school, or in the neighborhood, or in the family, or within the household. People like their privacy. They like to ascertain these things from a distance. And it may look like they're completely disinterested, but they're tuned in and listening to what's going on because it is completely foreign in that prison cell, and completely and increasingly foreign in the world in which we live. And so they listen, and they watch, and the whole world is conscious of the fact that anyone can sing songs when the prison doors are open and when we're released. But what really gets people's attention is the person who continues to worship and praise God while in some dark night of life. And when we are on the mountaintops of life, people, they notice our worship and our relationship with God. There's no doubt about that. But people aren't fully impacted by our praise and by our worship of God until they see and hear these things in the midst of circumstances like this and we continue to worship and bless God in the middle of a mess like that and it hasn't silenced our joy, or our praise. It always helps me to be reminded of this during these kind of seasons in life. 
And perhaps it's helpful reminder to someone here this morning that the circumstance is miserable. It's awful. But as you continue to worship and you continue to pray and you continue to praise God and you hold on to your joy in that marriage, in that workplace, in that school, in that neighborhood, in that whatever it might be, that it can cause people to stop and to think like never before. There must be something to this God of theirs that they wouldn't throw him off but continue to worship him and trust in him in the midst of circumstances like that. And it's a powerful witness. Let me ask you, and we close now, have you lost your joy as a Christian? Does it mark your life? I don't say it to condemn the privacy of your heart. But does it characterize your Christian life and my Christian life? And think about it for a moment, the privacy of your heart. Has it become the casualty of your circumstances today? And I believe that God wants to encourage us, not to rebuke us or to make us feel bad, but I believe that he wants to encourage us from his word this morning on the vital necessity of joy within our lives and how it is that we cannot afford to lose it and that we must not, if we have fallen into this place, grow accustomed to a joyless Christianity and to be reminded of the important place that prayer and the singing of hymns to God, praise and worship, plays in all of this. In a season of darkness within our lives, dark circumstances, as we see here, the, the uh, importance of worshiping God, and not only during the services when we come together and worship him as we've just enjoyed and we will with a closing song, but in the course of, of our lives, to download worship music and praise music onto our iPhones and onto our whatever phones and onto our iPods or to listen to K-Love or someplace that is putting this song within our heart because the circumstances are always fighting against this joy. And if you look at your Christian life this morning and, and you look at it in general and you realize that, man, when I look at these guys in verse 25, it makes me realize how flimsy and how fragile and how fleeting my joy is. If somebody looks at me cross-eyed, I lose my joy for 48 hours. If I get in an argument with someone, I lose it for a week. If I, something sets me back at work, I lose it for a month. And we, if somebody's too long and they're, again, looking at their cell phone and they get through the yellow light and then I have to wait and then I lose my joy for how long. And we all know from life how easy this thing is, is taken away and to realize this is something that is flimsy in my life. This is something that is is too fragile within my life. And to just be aware of it in the light of what we're looking at here today and to say and to ask the Lord, Lord, I don't want to lose it every little bump in the course of life and to recommit then to a life of joy realizing that we all have so much to rejoice in as Christians that again lies so far beyond the reach of any circumstance within our life. David wrote in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. And he also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Let's make that our prayer now. Let's stand together and pray together. Mm. 
Father, I pray and we pray together as a church family for every man and woman in this room whose joy is completely buried under some circumstance in their life, in some, Lord, not just by one great tragedy or one great trial, but two or three heaped one upon the other. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word and by your Holy Spirit and confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders and lift, Lord, their focus off of the greatness of their trial and on to your greatness and the greatness of your promises, Lord, and in doing so to restore this invaluable thing called joy into their relationship with you. And those of us who stand before you this morning, that, Lord, when we look at verse 25, it causes us to realize how fragile and fleeting our joy is, how quickly it's gone, and then for how long it is gone is a result. And we ask that you would take us by the hand and that you would teach us now how to give joy a place and nurture it and develop it within our lives so that it doesn't fall prey to the circumstances of life, even the small circumstances in life. And we pray that as we lose our joy over so many trivialities within life, we trust you to remind us by your Holy Spirit that this awful thing has happened within our hearts, Lord, and then to lift our heads and to restore joy to a permanent place within our lives. And so we ask, Lord, for ourselves and for one another in accordance with your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.